Good morning. My name is Matthew, one of the elders here. Excited that you're here this morning. Uh, one of my favorite movies as a kid was Home Alone, the enduring classic, of course. You're going to get a Home Alone quote and a Princess Bride quote this morning. We're just pray and go. Just give the benediction now. <laughs> Uh, but one of the points of Home Alone, obviously, is, is the last scene is when Kevin is, is dealing with, the, with, the, uh, with, with, with Marvin Harry? Harry? Yeah, Harry. Um, which takes up the, the, the latter half of the movie. And we come into a spot now, here's that transition, in the Gospels, where we deal with the last week of Jesus' life. And the last week of Jesus' life takes up a significant swath of the Gospels. Here we are in chapter 21 in Matthew, going to 28, dealing with one week of this man's life. John will do it in chapter 12, 12 of 20 chapters. Mark, I think, is around 10 or 11. One week of this man's life takes up a significant portion of what the Gospel writers will have for us. Because this last week of this man's life is the most important part of this man's life. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn to Matthew chapter 21, and I'm going to read to us what's known as the triumphal entry. This is Jesus coming to Jerusalem, and he's entering into the city for the last week of his life. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others put, cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went in before him, that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would open it to us by the power of your Holy Spirit to show us the wonderful things you have for us. And we pray that Jesus Christ and his beauty and glory would be impressed upon us, and I ask that you would help me as I preach. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's this phrase that continues here, but we must go back to the previous section, because when we looked at this two weeks ago, we spent a few moments on it. But in the previous section, chapter 20, starting at verse 29, Jesus has this encounter with these two blind men. And these two blind men 
say to Jesus something that's remarkable. Look at verse 30. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And then 31. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Uh, There's that place in Princess Bride when the one character keeps using the word inconceivable. And Inigo Montoya says, you keep using that word, I don't think it means what you think it means. Son of David. This is a truly remarkable statement. It's remarkable what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't give them some, court of, some sort of aw shucks reply. He doesn't say, guys, I know I'm nice and all, but son of David, really? When the blind men call out, everyone would have known what that would have meant, especially the disciples. The son of David is the fulfillment that this is the true king of the world. This is the one who rightfully will sit on the throne of David, the rightful and true king of Israel. It's remarkable that he doesn't say, no, no, no. He just says, what do you want me to do for you? He receives and he accepts the title. He's the son of David. Listen to the prophecy from 2 Samuel chapter 7. When your days are fulfilled, this is what was said to David. This is the prophecy given by God to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. By my steadfast, my steadfast love will not depart from him. Your king Excuse me, your throne shall be established forever. This is the first time, by the way, in the Gospels that someone has cried out in public, ultimate king of the world, true king, son of David, rightful heir to the throne of David. And Jesus just looked at them and says, yes, how can I help you? The disciples would have gasped. For a few reasons. One, they wanted him to openly declare that he was the king. They so much wanted him to publicly proclaim it and to force the issue. Because now the issue has been forced. Now people must deal with this claim. And that issue is forced upon you this morning as well. Jesus Christ declares himself to be the king of the world. To be the king of the universe. He can't be just... Aw shucks, brushed off now. The hair on the back of their neck has gone up because now this is do or die. They know that now he must destroy or be destroyed. They are on the way to Jerusalem and he has declared himself to be the king. The great drama is now unfolding. We live in a unique time. In the scope of all history, and I'm not making the point that you think I'm making. I don't necessarily mean 2019 America. 
I mean, we live in a unique time in this brief thing between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. In the scope of eternity, this will be a, it'll be a, it'll be a, it'll be a, a short breath, a short memory. These 2,000 years is a unique time in what's called salvation history. We live in a wonderful time. Because the kingship of Jesus will be described in a very different way at the end of history. The kingship of Jesus here is described as this man coming in on a donkey. Humble, your king comes to you. But at the end, it looks like this. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and he wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe that's dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, are following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe, and on his thigh, he has a name written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. When the kingship of Jesus appears... In the skies like that, it will be too late to switch sides. Paul will tell us in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. What Matthew is trying to show us this morning is the way that he proclaims the kingships of Jesus. He wants us to hear And what Jesus wants us to see is that, yes, he is the king, but he's not the king of a tribe. He's not even an international or global king, but he is the king for the meek and the lowly, the welcoming, seeking, forgiving, patient king. He will, in a matter of days from this text, shed his own blood to save those who will accept his free gift of amnesty now and come over to his side. Until he comes that second time and we see the majesty and the wonder of his kingship in all of its full array. You live in a unique time in all of history, in all of eternity. The king comes to you, the son of David, and he comes to you meek and he comes to you lowly. And he comes and he beckons you to bow your knee to him. Gentle and meek. But he will come a second time. And when he comes a second time, he will set the world right. He will set the world right. He will pour out his wrath against sin and sinners. And if we're honest with ourselves, we must know that the problem with the world lies within our own human heart. And God will be righteous and just to judge us. But friend, this morning... If you hear his voice and you see this king, 
I urge you to repent, to turn from your sin and come to this meek and gentle king. This meek and gentle king who will receive you. He will take you. He will bring you to himself. He will bring you to his father. This is the son of David who comes in on a donkey for you. Repent and come to him. And that's the first point I want to press upon you this morning. But the second point, this is just a two-point sermon, is the king enters. You must see, to truly understand this text, that Jesus is orchestrating this whole thing. He's sent his disciples ahead to do this. Uh, look at Matthew uh, 21, 1-5 to again. He sends two of his disciples to go get the donkey. Verse 2, he says, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to thee. Why is he doing this? Why does Jesus want to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey? Never before has he done anything like this. If you're new to the Bible, this is not something Jesus does all the time. Jesus just doesn't go tell people to give me your donkey and start riding them. This is to take place, verse 4 and 5, to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, that's Israel, Behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This is a quote, as, we, as many of us know, from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And Jesus has chosen to act out the fulfillment of this prophecy and declare his kingship in the action of riding on a donkey. This means, yes, I am king, for that's what the prophet says when it says, Behold, your king. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. And he is coming with salvation. He is coming humble. He's mounted on a donkey, even a colt. Zechariah 9.10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion, which is his kingship, his rule, will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Do you see what he's declaring? Jesus very intentionally acts out the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9 and declares his humble gentle, saving, but both Jewish and global kingship. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. So that's first. He's first saying, Jerusalem, Israel, your king is here. But then he opens it up, and this is such good news to us, First Zechariah 9.10, and he will speak peace to the nations. What good news to us? That he doesn't just come and declare his kingship over Israel, And to the Jews, he comes and declares his kingship over the whole world to the Gentiles, to you and me. There you go. But the second thing that he does that I didn't read this morning, but we'll allude to it now is that he comes in and he cleanses the temple. 
I'm going to make the same point from this text. In verses 12 and 13, Jesus acts out another Old Testament text. It says, he entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the, temple, the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And to explain what he's doing, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 56, right? The explanation of what he's doing, why he's do, flipping these over is, is he, 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 tell, he takes us to Isaiah 56. And he says in verse 13, and he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. There are two things that make this quotation from Isaiah so significant. One is that in context, in Isaiah, it's about the coming of the kingdom of God. So again, Jesus is putting himself in the position of the coming king. And the second thing that's significant, again, is that in the context, it's global, not just Jewish. Isaiah 56, 6 says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to the name of the Lord to be his servants. He quotes a text that talks about foreigners coming to Yahweh. Foreigners coming to God. So when Jesus, twice now, chooses a prophetic word for from Zechariah 9.9 and now from Isaiah 56.6 to interpret his actions, he chooses one that underlies the fact that he is the king for all peoples. He's a king for all peoples. He's a king for you this morning. And he is jealous to open up his father's house to you. He is jealous and zealous to open his father's house to you for prayer. My father's house shall be for all nations. My father's house is one to be a house of prayer. And he was angry that his house and his father's name and his father's temple wasn't being opened to all peoples. And it's open to you this morning. It's open to me. So how am I going to apply this? Matthew, being sick, gives you a potentially short sermon. How, do I want to, how should we press this into our hearts and our lives this morning? We get to come to the table here in a few minutes. We get to come to Jesus and meet him at the table and meet one another at the table here in a few minutes. So let's... Let's get ready. But the reason that we can come to him this morning is because he's come to us first. Verse 5. Your king is coming to you humble. Your king is coming to you humble. Let me just press it into us, apply it to us, and we'll come to the table. Your king. We've said it several times. But the choice here, and the disciples know, is to either crown him or kill him. The choice is to either crown him or kill him. Those are the only choices. Non-Christian friends, he can't just be an insignificant figure. He can't just be a good moral teacher. He's not just a good moral teacher. He says he's the king of the world. He says, I am your king and I am coming to you. 
You must deal with that. You must deal with the claims of Jesus Christ on face value. He is the king coming to you. Which means he can't be friend. He can't be savior even. He can't be comforter if he isn't first your king. He must be the one that rules your life. He must be the one that dictates everything about you. He must be the king. And Christian friends, there's a temptation when I just preach what I just preach to say, yeah, pastor, go get him. But he's saying it to you too. Is he your king? Are you obeying him? Enjoying him? Seeking him? I was reminded this week uh, of that interesting place, really interesting story in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 19, the sons of Sceva. <laughs> and these guys, they, 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 they treat the name of Jesus like it's a magic potion or something. And they try to cast out demons, and the demon actually looks in, at these guys and says, yeah, we know who Jesus is, and we know who Paul is, but who are you guys? <laughs> And torments these guys. Because these sons of Sceva, these seven brothers, were treating the name of Jesus like it's a magic potion. Like it's some kind of incantation to just be taken on and, 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 and taken off. Like it's a coat or something. Like it's a, 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 a cry in a foxhole. Friends, he can't be that. He refuses to be that. He is the king. We must ask ourselves, as we're coming to him in prayer, as we're coming to him in the circumstances of our life, are we bowing our knee to him and obeying him and trusting him? Brothers, do you know that Peter will tell us that one of the reasons God might not be hearing your prayers is because of the way you're treating your wife? Peter will tell us that your prayers might be hindered because of the way you're treating your life. Which just speaks to illustrate the point that God demands all of your life. He demands every inch and aspect of it. He is the king. He is not one who can just be taken up and put off as you see fit. But he comes to you humble. <laughs> you know, I've already alluded to Zechariah chapter 9, but there's another place that commentators and scholars suggest that Jesus could be quoting him, and that's Genesis 49. Genesis 49 says that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until the tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of all peoples... Binding his fold to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed the garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. There is remarkable paradox in those two verses. The paradox is that the scepter will not depart from him. He's the ruler. He's the king. He's the one to whom all tribute belongs. And then there's this phrase that says that he ties his donkey's colt to a choice vine. That's a paradox. 
Kings don't come in on donkeys. Kings come in on big white steeds, which Jesus will do at the end of time in Revelation chapter 19. There is remarkable paradox there, and it started all the way back in Genesis. But look at the end of it. It says, he has washed his garments in wine in his vestures, his robes, vestures or robes, in the blood of grapes. You know what that, that's saying? Washing your, 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 washing your robes in grapes? That's talking about prosperity. That's, I mean, if, if you've got enough wine laying around that you can wash your clothes in it, it's like blowing your nose with hundreds. I mean, that's what it's saying. It's saying that the choicest thing there we're using to clean dirty clothes. That's what the rule and reign of this king will be like. And yet the paradoxical nature of it is he's going to come to you and he's going to tie up his donkey onto the wine vine. I am the king, he says, and I'm going to ride in on a donkey and that is my death sentence. I'm going to bring to you the kind of prosperity and joy that you'll be able to clean your dirty clothes in choice wine. And I'm doing it by signing my death sentence. To come in on a donkey means to come in defenseless and vulnerable. He may as well not have been on one. It probably would have been safer. To come in on a donkey is to come in defenseless and vulnerable. Do you understand the, the, the heart of the gospel is wrapped up in that idea? We could describe sin like this. Sin is to act like the king instead of acting like a servant. Sin is to put yourself in the position of king of your own life instead of the position of servant. So therefore, the true king acts like a servant instead of a king. That's the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is that you have given God the proverbial middle finger and acted like king. And so in order to save you, the true king acts like a servant, rides in on a donkey in order to truly save you. The rightful king becomes a servant. Look, let me press this into you. We all want to be saved by grace but we want to save with power. Let me say it again and I'll explain it. I thought about it. We all want to be saved by grace, but we want to save with power. We want people to come to us humble and meek and lowly. We want people to come to us humble, meek, and lowly. And yet the way that we want to fix the world is through our own exertion, power, and strength. We want to be shown in, as, as, as right. We want people to forgive us, but we don't want to forgive them. We want to be saved by grace. We want people to see our side, see our perspective, understand that there were mitigating circumstances. Hey, we're all human, aren't we? But we want to exert force and demands on other people that we're right. Our perspective needs to be seen. All of our problems, all of the world's problems, all of our miseries are servants putting themselves in the place of the king. 
And the only way for the king to save us is for him to come in the place of a servant to take the death penalty. I am a king, he says, but not like the one you expected. If I liberated you from the Romans, then what would you do? It wouldn't change our real slavery. Their real slavery isn't the fact that they are in this small Roman outpost. Our real salvation doesn't come from the change of our circumstances. Their circumstances don't change. Christians will live in this kind of situation for almost all of the first couple hundred years of all of Christianity. Their circumstances don't change. They're still living under Roman occupation and Roman rule. He doesn't come to change their circumstances. He comes to change their hearts. The Christians were freed, and yet they remained in the social minority position. And he can change us too. He can change us too, because the whole point is that we are saved through weakness. The whole point is that we can't be saved through strength. And when we begin to see that, when we see that we weren't saved through strength, we were saved through his weakness, laying down his rights, it should change the way that we interact with other people. It should change us from the inside out to lay down our rights, to realize that when we are weak, then we are strong. You can't be saved through strength. This morning, we have two chances to deal with our strength-giving mentality. And the first chance I'm going to give you is before we come to the Lord's table. When I'm done preaching here in a couple minutes, we're going to pause, we're going to wait, and we're going to ask God how this word should affect us. How would he have us respond? And the second is after the service. Every week, we have elders up here ready to pray with you for any needs you may have. And every week, we have members of the congregation up front, ready to pray with you for every, any need, any desire, any act of repentance that you may have. So don't leave. Don't leave without coming to God who has first come to you. Which leads us to the third and final implication and application that he comes to you. This is such good news that he comes to us. What's remarkable in this passage is that they're actually cutting down palm branches and they're laying them in front of Jesus and he's walking across them on this humble donkey. Which commentators and scholars hearken back to places like Psalm 95 and Isaiah 55. You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills 
before you shall break forth into singing, and the trees of the field shall clap their hands. By laying palm branches down, commentators are suggesting that Jesus is saying this is the foretaste of the joy that is to come. It says that the, 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 the trees of the field will clap their hands. It says that the, the mountains themselves, when Jesus comes back, will break forth into singing. That the kingship of Jesus is marked by great joy, triumph, pleasure for those that find themselves in him. Because he's the one who comes to you. And this is just a foretaste. We are like, we, 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 we are on the brink of eternal joy with God himself because of what Jesus Christ has done. And these palm branches and the people singing and the people rejoicing in Jerusalem is but a foretaste of what's going to happen. If the trees are going to sing, what will we be like? If the trees will sing, what will you and I be like when our king finally comes to us?